She's just not that bright. I'm sorry. I have to say it. I've seen their case. I've seen their lawyers. They don't know what they're talking about. This is a kind of politically tinged defense lawyering. And it makes a lot of sense because the goal is not necessarily to win a trial. You can avoid responsibility by saying, it's not me who thinks that domestic violence offenders should have like an inviolable right to a gun. It's the founding fathers. Do you read Bruin as step one being um, go to the archives and try to determine whether or not there's some historical analog for the kinds of legislation that I'm considering? Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. And (laughs) whether we like it or not, most days, the connection between the justice system and accountability for one Donald J. Trump. This past week was a busy one, both at the Supreme Court, where arguments were heard in United States versus Rahimi, a case we previewed last week. It was a busy week in a courtroom in Manhattan where Donald Trump took the stand and made a whole bunch of squidgy faces and insulted the judge. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee are pushing forward with plans to subpoena Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo to learn more about unreported gifts to Justice Clarence Thomas. And voters from Ohio to Kentucky and around the country proved yet again that abortion rights post-Dobbs are a democracy issue. There was a Republican primary debate. Later on in the show, we are going to catch up with Madiba Denny of Balls and Strikes, in part because we are huge, slobbering Madiba Denny fans over here at the show, but also for a quick recap of the oral arguments in the gun rights case on Tuesday, because back in February, Madiba wrote a piece for The Atlantic entitled, Originalism is Going to Get Women Killed. So she'll be here to discuss where oral arguments in Rahimi placed us on that path. And Slate Plus members will have exclusive access to an extended version of that interview in which Madiba shares one of the smartest observations about Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh that I've heard from anyone like anywhere in a long time. In addition to listening to bonus segments like our SCOTUS gossip sessions, Slate Plus members have access to ad-free version of all Slate podcasts. They never hit a paywall at Slate.com. And they support all the journalism that we do here at Amicus and at the magazine. If you would like to find out more about becoming a member, please go to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And to our lovely, lovely Slate Plus subscribers, thank you so much for supporting the work we do here to make the law legible for everyone. But now, back to the law of Trump, which is also known as covering the law in the courts while an authoritarian in waiting takes a political brickbat to every last judicial legal convention. This past Wednesday, prosecutors wrapped up their arguments in the civil trial brought by New York Attorney General Tish James against Donald Trump for fraudulent business practices on the part of the Trump Organization. The court has heard testimony from 25 witnesses over the past six weeks. But in this past week or so, oh, it's been one for the books and also one for the stump. Testimony from Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Eric Trump, who are all co-defendants, rocked the courtroom. Ivanka Trump testified on Wednesday, but she is no longer a defendant in the case. The judge has indicated the trial will continue on Monday, apparently batting away the defense's motion to dismiss. Donald Trump Jr. is expected back on the stand as the first witness for the defense. Now, look, listeners to this show know that we tend to treat the spectacle of the former president's legal woes with great reservation and with some arm's length hesitation. The prospect of legal experts dunking continuously on Trump and his lawyers really only serves to cement the illusion that the legal merits are the only determinative issue here. The fact that Trump and his lawyers have effectively turned this courtroom and the courthouse steps into a big old campaign stop matters. It actually matters a lot, as is evident from the fact that whatever else can be said about the GOP primary, it is decidedly no longer a contest about who the Republican nominee will be. So this is our animating question on this week's show. 
Is legal theater being deployed to greater political effect than we want to believe? And is that being done in service of really enduring political theater that we may be missing? So our guest today is Professor Eric Posner. He's a longtime friend of Slate and of this show. He's been writing and thinking about political trials historically and internationally for almost two decades. And more recently, he's been writing about the risks of show trials here in the United States. We wanted to tap Eric, to at least think about the possibility that we're missing the democracy forest for the legal trees yet again as we bear witness to the chilling prospect of Donald Trump losing in his trials and gaining and gaining and gaining as an authoritarian. Eric Posner is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He is most recently the author of How Antitrust Failed Workers from 2021, Oxford University Press. He writes extensively on topics far too numerous to to detail, but one focus of his recent concern has been this danger of trials for political leaders. So, Eric, welcome back to Amicus. Thanks so much, Dahlia. Great to be here. Um, and I, I want to start maybe with just this simple atmospherics question, which is just what was your impression of Donald Trump's performance in the New York courtroom on Monday? It was described, I noticed, as, quote, brash and belligerent and verbose in the New York Times in the manner of like a theater review. Uh, he went after Tish James. He dismissed her as a political hack. He derided the entire proceeding as very unfair. He insulted the judge for having, quote, called me a fraud. He didn't know anything about me, end quote. Uh, Tish James responded with tweets. The judge admonished Trump's attorney to keep him under control. This didn't feel like any trial I've ever seen before. And I just wondered if you can just give us in your view, was this a moment in which the justice system was winning or did the former president reduce the entire thing to kind of a touchdown dance? It's hard to know in the moment. We'll know better as time passes and we see what effect Trump's various trials have on his political fortunes. But I do think this was theater on his part and that he was very much trying to turn the um, the trial into a moment in which he can make uh, political arguments that would resonate with his supporters and maybe even some people who are, you know, the small number of people who don't have an opinion on who the next president should be. So you warned in a piece that you wrote this past August that and I quote you here, there is a significant danger that the trials will help Mr. Trump rather than hurt him as contests between the government and a loosely formed but powerful opposition group. They may come to be seen as political trials. And I wondered if you could just start maybe by defining what you mean by political trials. And then I know you do it in great depth in your writing, but can you just give us a kind of cursory review of what it means to call something a political trial and a survey of some of them throughout history and maybe throughout U.S. history, what it is you're warning us about? A regular trial, a regular criminal trial, let's say, is a search for the truth to determine whether the defendant has violated the law. A political trial can be thought of as um, an attempt by the government to use the legal system to attack their political opponents and to either get those political opponents put in jail where they can no longer pose a political threat or simply to distract them or to make them look bad to the public. And so political trials um, are usually thought of in a negative sense, uh, especially in democracies where the rule of law is, is valued, but um, they're not necessarily negative. So, for example, our Constitution has a provision for impeachment, and I think it's fair to say that the founders thought of impeachment as a kind of a political trial. It was a way for Congress to determine that a president is not fit for office, you know, even if he hasn't, for example, violated some uh, specific law. As for history, political trials go way back. The tradition was for them to be used by authoritarian governments. Um, sometimes they've been used by revolutionary governments, like uh, in France, which uh, tried uh, King Louis XVI. But in the U.S. history, there are quite an interesting number of trials 
that you know could be defined as political trials, not necessarily because the government officials necessarily were trying to prevent uh, their political opponents from running for office or having influence, but because they were perceived that way, and they may well have been motivated by that. So just a few examples. One of the early famous examples was the impeachment of Samuel Chase, who was a Supreme Court justice. And uh, he was basically a political opponent of Jefferson. He was a Federalist. Jefferson was a Jeffersonian Republican. And uh, Jefferson and his allies were very unhappy about how Chase had conducted trials in those days. uh, Supreme Court justices could do that and tried to have him impeached. And the impeachment was rejected by the Senate. And a lot of historians think that set a kind of precedent that it was wrong for the government to go after, let's say, a judge or another official or a member of the opposite party because of political disagreements, even if there was, you know, some merit to the claim that this person had violated the law. Chase had not, you know, violated the law in the sense that, uh, you know, of committing fraud or something, but he was quite obviously a, a biased judge. But um, in the end, he was acquitted. At roughly the same time, there was a trial of Aaron Burr for uh, treason. And while there was, you know, pretty good evidence that Burr was up to no good, you know, he was, he was one of the founders, but he, he seemed to want to um, overthrow the government, although it was a little bit ambiguous. That case also failed. And that case was also regarded as political by Burr's supporters. They thought the government was going after him because he was a political threat rather than a threat to the well-being of the country. Now, we could fast forward to the 20th century. Probably the best examples would be uh, trials during the Vietnam War. So there are these famous trials, you know, they're often named after cities like the Boston Five and the Chicago Eight, where um, people who were opposed to the Vietnam War were arrested and tried. And, you know, usually they had violated the law. In the Chicago 8 case, they were involved in riots. In Boston 5, they technically did violate laws that prevented people from discouraging Americans from reporting to the draft. But um, they were, again, seen as political trials because people believed that the government was going after these people because they opposed the Vietnam War rather than because they broke the law. And both of those trials were kind of disasters for the government. The uh, defendants were ultimately acquitted after appeal. The trials became circuses. And and this was the first thing I thought about when you were talking about Trump's trial. It's very much in the interest of the defendants to use the trial as an opportunity to attack the government. And often they attack not only the government, meaning, you know, the prosecutor or the, you know, the president or the administration, but they're attacking the court itself. They want to show that the judge is biased, that the court is illegitimate, that the whole system is corrupt. And even if that's not going to help them, you know, in the immediate term to win the case, since judges and jurors usually don't like this sort of thing, It can help them with public opinion, it can embarrass the government, and ultimately turn them into heroes, which happened. So those are probably pretty good examples of the risks that the Biden administration faces, and I suppose the government of Georgia as well, in uh, prosecuting Trump, that he'll be seen as, you know, a martyr if he loses, or simply as a hero if he wins, or even if he loses, and that it will help his political fortunes rather than hurt them. So if I'm seven years old and you're explaining what you just explained to me, is the answer that whenever there is either a politician involved or a major political question involved, it's always going to be some heightened risk of kind of getting folded into the bucket of this is just a political trial? Yes, there's a risk. It doesn't necessarily have to happen. Politicians are, you know, prosecuted all the time for corruption, for taking bribes, for any any kind of criminal law if they, you know, if they murder somebody. Those trials don't necessarily become political if it's clear to the public that they violated some generally applicable law under which anybody is is prosecuted. And often these defendants just don't have the charisma or moxie to convert a regular trial into a political trial. It's also the case that a trials of ordinary people 
can become political trials just because there's a view that the government went after these people because of their political views. So in the case of draft evaders, not all of them were famous. Some of them were just ordinary people, but their trials would get a lot of attention. They'd become controversial. Members of the public would take the side of the defendants because they didn't trust the government. They believed the government was doing something wrong and was going after people who were legitimate critics. So, you know, it's a little bit hard to define this term, but the simplest case of a political trial, I would say, is when we know the government is using the law, general laws, to target a political opponent because that person poses some kind of political threat to the government. But also, just regular criminal trials can take on this political tinge if that's what the public believes, even if the government is acting in good faith. And that's why there's an opportunity, especially for very prominent political defendants, to turn what is really a regular trial into what is perceived as a political trial by drawing on their supporters and making accusations against the government. Eric, I feel like you maybe already started to answer this, but I'd love for you to unpack it. You suggested in your answer to my first question that the framers of the Constitution actually believed that they had created a democratic superstructure that would protect against, you know, political trials or what you've described in your article as a long and storied history of political trials that backfire on their perpetrators. And I think what you said was, and this I think is descriptively correct, that you create this other kind of trial called impeachment, and that was the way to solve for the problem. But I think you also said, or at least implied just now, that part of the problem is now you have two different kinds of political trials and major, major uncertainty. We certainly saw this after the impeachment of Donald Trump of whether... (laughs) one forum or the other is the appropriate place. In other words, instead of solving for the problem of political trials that can backfire, did the framers just create a sort of sidebar that's possibly even more occluded and worse? Well, you know, I, I think what they did um, had, a, had a great deal of logic to it, but the real world is is so messy that the, that they weren't able to solve the problem. But But first, you know, they were definitely worried about political trials, that is, attempts by the government to use the criminal process to attack their opponents. And they had a a very simple and durable solution, which was the independent judiciary. And independent judges who have some distance from what the government is trying to accomplish, you know, the appeal system, all of that has done a really good job, I think, in the United States to discourage political trials. Because the government can bring the case, but you know, if the court thinks this is politically motivated, if there's no law behind it, they'll lose almost always. Now, there, in some of these cases, the judges have been sympathetic to the government and and not to the defendants, like the Chicago Eight case in particular. But the judge ended up looking bad; he was reversed. So that system works pretty well. Now, they understood that the president of the United States, um, you know could break the law. And I'm not sure they considered the possibility that the president, while in office, could be subject to a trial. They, that may have seemed strange to them because, uh, you know, he, he controls the executive branch. He, he determines prosecutions. So they have the impeachment process, which was clearly political in the sense that you have politicians, um, the House and the Senate, you know, bringing the indictment and trying the case. And, you know, they were free to decide on the basis of their political motivations. They weren't like a jury who were, you know, necessarily supposed to just apply the law to the facts. And certainly this made sense. The problem is, is that impeachment is, you know, in some ways too difficult. Trump, you know, should have been impeached, certainly for the January 6th behavior, the election uh, behavior. But the, the fact is, he, he had a lot of supporters in the Republican Party. It, a two-thirds majority of the Senate was never going to um, impeach him. On the other hand, if you make impeachment too easy or have um, 
some other system that makes it too easy to uh, prosecute a president who behaves badly, then that will be used politically. And impeachment itself now has just become, I think, a political tool, not in the way that the founders meant, you know, just as an everyday way to harass whoever's in office. So the system has kind of broken down. And, uh, you know, that's a shame. It's not really that surprising, I think, with the benefit of hindsight. And we're going to pause now to hear from our sponsors. We're back now with Professor Eric Posner on this question of political trials. You, I think, are going to tell me right now that given that Donald Trump's main rhetorical and legal defense, and I think you're saying this is a hallmark of the defense against show trials and political trials, is that it's the government is, you know, it's a witch hunt and it's cooked up in this case by Biden and the deep state haters. And the whole point is to stitch him up so he can't run in 2024. And I think you've written and it's true. There's lots of reasons that's not true. But I wonder if what you're going to say is that the dozens and dozens of counts and all of the prosecutions in the multiple jurisdictions, everything piling up at once actually lends a certain amount of credence to the sense that this is just a big, fat, retributive pylon. In other words, maybe it would have been better to just let Jack Smith be the one and only guy instead of having multiple, multiple, in some cases, repetitive and in some case, not that compelling cases that starts to make it look like Donald Trump is quite correct when he says it's all a witch hunt. Yeah, it looks that way, definitely. So if we, in an authoritarian state, which has, you know, a judicial system, um, there, it is common to harass political opponents with investigations and trials. And sometimes in those states, the judiciary is honest enough and powerful enough that they can protect the defendant from actual conviction. But what those states can do is simply harass the person with, as you say, multiple investigations, multiple trials. You keep them busy, you impoverish them, you make them look bad. So that's a strategy that's used by authoritarian states. You know, the ones that are powerful, but not so powerful enough that they just arrest their opponents and execute them. Now, um, in the United States, we don't have, you know, Biden at the top giving directions to Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Georgia, and for that matter, to Jack Smith um, or the people in New York, you know, our system doesn't work that way. So even if he wanted to, even if he was being Machiavellian and trying to think of the best way to harass and defeat Donald Trump, he just just doesn't have the power to do that. So in our, our country, so is much more decentralized and the Justice Department even though nominally under the president's authority has a great deal of autonomy. And so I think these prosecutors are acting in good faith, uh, trying to be conscientious. But if you are in Georgia and you think Trump has violated Georgia law, it's not entirely clear that you should be paying attention to what's going on in New York City or Washington, D.C. So I think the effect, uh, not the intention, is to create this uh, sense that Trump is being harassed by the political system. Certainly, he's spending a lot of time in court, although one might wonder whether that's a distraction or whether that's, you know, to his benefit politically. But, uh, you know, I think he can make this argument and that it's going to sound credible to many people. I I don't know how many, though. I mean, I'm I'm sure his supporters believe this, but what he really needs to do is persuade people who are not inclined to vote for him that this is unfair and that he's not being given the opportunity to run his campaign properly. I don't know whether he can do that, but that's definitely the strategy. So there was another piece of news this week that feels like it's in your wheelhouse. Uh, The Minnesota Supreme Court blocked an effort to use the insurrection clause to keep Trump off the ballot in that state. I think you've offered a, a parallel critique to the efforts that are being made in various states to use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the insurrection clause, as a vehicle for removing Donald Trump from ballots. 
And I think in your view, doing so pretty much guarantees what will be a seismic blowback that taking someone off the ballot, a former president, the Republican Party frontrunner, may, I think you've written, have the impact of disenfranchising a huge portion of the electorate in its own eyes. It's hard to think of a better way to discredit both democracy itself and the rule of law in one blow than to do this. And this is you not just offering a kind of constitutional or originalist uh, uh, reading, which I think you grapple with separately. This is just you making a pragmatic political point similar to the pragmatic political point you're making about having these big political show trials, right? Right, exactly. And I I think the problem is that that a lot of people are thinking about these attempts to prosecute Trump or to keep him off the ballot in a lawyerly fashion, which, of course, is understandable because these are legal proceedings and the insurrection clause argument is based on the Constitution. But this kind of legalistic thinking makes sense when you're talking about ordinary people or businesses who are subject to like the ordinary types of um, legal process. But when you're talking about somebody who's a former president and is the front runner for office or any, you know, like major politician or very popular person, you have to think about these cases, as, as you say, pragmatically, as well as legally. You have to think about them in political terms. What is the impact of these cases and um, claims going to be on the public? Now, it's, it's tempting to talk about democracy with a capital D, and one can do that. But I'm more interested in just political psychology. Are these efforts going to backfire and help Trump? Or even if they're successful, are they just going to cause long-term damage because half the population or 40% of the population feel like, you know, they've been disenfranchised or even um, because office holders, maybe Republican office holders feel that now they have a basis for retaliating against Democrats. So you can imagine all kinds of bad effects, both in the short term and the long term. And it's not that one shouldn't bring these sorts of claims. It's that one should do it while also thinking about these types of political and pragmatic effects. Unfortunately, there's a sense in which this is a further cycle in the degradation of uh, of American liberal democracy, thanks largely to Trump. You know, if he had acted more responsibly, then the people on the other side wouldn't have brought these cases but they they have, and they probably should have, at least some of them. But if you bring them without actually thinking about their political effect, in which case they take on this political tinge, uh, you know, that's just being irresponsible because you could produce outcomes that are even worse than what we've experienced so far. So I, I just want to, because I, I have to do this, uh, have you listen a little to Alina Haba, <laughs> Trump's lawyer. Here's a little bit of audio from whatever it was that she was doing. It doesn't matter what your politics are. Everyone has a right in this country to get up and put a defense. I don't care who you are. You have a right to hire a lawyer who can put objections on the record. You have a right to hire a lawyer who can stand up and say something when they see something wrong. But I was told to sit down today. I was yelled at and I've had a judge who is unhinged slamming a table. Let me be very clear. I don't tolerate that in my life. I'm not going to tolerate it here. Barb McQuaid on our sister podcast, What Next, reflected on the fact that she had just never seen an attorney make what is essentially a campaign appearance, you know, trashing the judge, trashing the judges, the simple act of telling her to sit down, implying that everything that the judge was doing was an infringement on, you know, her ability to put on a case. I mean, this is what judges do. They tell lawyers to get their client under control all the time. This is further evidence of this point you're making, this global point about she's just not acting like a lawyer. Whatever it is that she is doing is a completely political act. And by the way, she doesn't care if she's sanctioned and she doesn't care if they lose. Sure. I think a lot of lawyers who you know, don't want to anger a judge or be subject to disciplinary hearings. We'll leave it to the defendant to make outrageous claims about the judge or the prosecutor 
rather than doing it themselves. I don't actually think this is unprecedented, though. I, I do think there are lots of famous lawyers, William Kunstler comes to mind, who you know made their reputation defending unpopular defendants. And uh, while it's, uh, you know, I'm not sure they've ever attacked the judge in court, certainly outside of court, they will argue that, for example, the prosecutor or the administration is biased. This is a kind of politically tinged defense lawyering. And it makes a lot of sense because the goal is not necessarily to win a trial. Sometimes it's foregone. You're not going to win a trial because the law is so clearly against you. But if you win in the court of public opinion, that may help your client because a pardon might come later down, or your client after he or she leaves jail might, you know, be able to have a political career or at least go on the talk show circuit. I mean, there, there are lots of longer term uh, goals here. And I also think, by the way, that part of what's going on in the uh, Trump civil fraud trial is that the lawyers are trying to goad the judge into making a mistake. I think that's a risky maneuver because the lawyers themselves could just get into trouble. But I suspect, you know, they're trying very hard to please their client. Uh, maybe they're hoping for, you know, some really nice rewards down the line in the form of political appointments or what have you. Or maybe they'll just burnish their reputation as lawyers. But if they can annoy the judge enough that the judge makes a mistake, you know, bursts into a rage or says things to reporters outside of uh, the trial showing some level of bias, that's the grounds for reversal on appeal. And that can be a huge benefit for Trump because his goal now is to delay the outcomes of many of these trials. So the civil trials may be a little bit different from the criminal trial, but if he can just get it sort of extended um, so that it's, it doesn't even conclude until after the election. During his campaign, he's going to be able to point to this as yet another example of bias against him, of uh, how he's defeating the bad guys. So, you know, I th again, this is, a, this is the problem with looking at these trials as if they were regular trials. They're not. Uh, a lot is going on. And it's possible that these lawyers are acting in a shrewd way rather than just, you know, being stupid. So, Eric, my last question, <laughs> you know what I'm going to ask you. Um, listeners, he's cringing because <laughs> I, I have to ask you this question because I actually class everything you have just said under the same rubric that I put. Margaret Sullivan, you know, who's been writing media is not taking the stakes seriously enough. Jay Rosen, who is saying, you know, we can't keep doing horse race. We got to do stakes. You're saying the same thing. You're just saying it in a legal context rather than a political context. But it leads me inexorably to ask you, what do you do instead? Uh, you have said it several times in this conversation. Look, <laughs> it had to be done. We weren't going to let the guy just walk away from the smoldering ash heap of constitutional democracy. What's the alternative? Uh, if we stipulate that you're right and that this may backfire immensely, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is not to <laughs> not to bring these cases. <laughs> um, let, 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 let me let me. So I, I, I'm not opposed to all of these cases. I think, for example, the um, the confidential documents case, that seems very solid. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm ambivalent about the Georgia and the, and the DC prosecutions. So I'm making a narrower point that these are risky and that these risks should be taken into account. And we should be worried about these sorts of trials. But I think, you know, really, I, I am a bit worried that people who, who think Trump is an authoritarian, many people are just a terrible human being, even if he's not an authoritarian, that they are themselves doing things that are in some ways Trumpian. You know, the, the real way to oppose Trump is through democracy, you know, to campaign against him, to make arguments that he's doing a bad job, to vote against him. The attempt to use the 14th Amendment to keep him off the ballot, I think that's a real mistake. That's a kind of a subterfuge. You, you know, you can argue it's there in the Constitution, but the real effect of doing that is to really, I think, undermine the election. 
I mean, it'd be one thing if it had been clear, you know, five years ago that if you do something that like what Trump does, you, you know, you can't, you can't run for office, but, or even, you know, a couple years ago, but just coming up with this new theory, whole cloth to prevent him from running, I think this will cause many people who are already losing confidence in democracy or the U.S. system to lose even more confidence. So I do think that if Trump, you know, breaks the law in clear ways after he's out of office, by all means, it's appropriate to prosecute him. I think even his supporters, you know, understand that if he, you know, murdered somebody, for example, that he should be tried and and put in jail, uh, even though that will interfere with his presidential campaign. But when you get to these hazier and more politically charged types of prosecutions, there are just these risks. Uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to this question because I do believe that he acted terribly, but we're just in this very difficult place. And uh, certainly it's a mistake to think that these trials are going to solve the all the problems with Trump. I, I just, I don't think that's going to happen, even if he's convicted. And I think there's a danger of taking the next step, thinking of other ways of preventing Trump from reaching the presidency that will do further damage to U.S. institutions. So let me just give you one example, which I was reading in, just in the Times the other day by a columnist who I think he argued, or at least he, he discussed someone who was arguing that the Federal Reserve should lower interest rates in order to pump up the economy so that people will vote for Biden instead of Trump. And that's really just one step from from using trials politically to go after Trump. Once people are saying those things and doing those things, they're they're not being that much different from Trump himself. Trump, after all, did try to get the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates while he was in office to boost the economy. And, you know, we were all outraged by that. But at some level, you know, you've, you've just got to draw the line and hope that when the election comes around, people will vote against him. Eric Posner is a professor at the University of Chicago School of Law. He is author, most recently, of How Antitrust Failed Workers. He writes extensively on so many topics. I always, always learn from you, Eric. And I think on this question of we can't just look at this as legal theater because there's a whole lot that is happening that we have to take into account. I just think you've been incredibly nuanced and thoughtful, and I can't thank you enough both for your work on this topic and for joining us to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. I I had a good time. (laughs) Returning now to Rahimi, we previewed the facts and the potential real-life consequences of this Spawn of Bruin gun case last week with Shannon Watts. And now we're going to hear from Madiba K. Denny. Uh, Madiba is an attorney, columnist, and professor whose work focuses on fostering an equitable, multiracial democracy. She is currently writing her debut book, forthcoming from Random House. It's called The Originalism Trap, How Extremists Stole the Constitution and How We the People Can Take It Back. As a counsel at the Brennan Center, Madiba provided legal and policy analysis regarding a range of democracy issues, including the census, the courts, and attempts to disempower communities of color. She is taught at Western Washington University and NYU Law School. She earned her law degree from Columbia Law School and her undergraduate degree from Princeton University. Madiba, welcome to Amicus. Pleasure to be here. So I think I want to start with this maybe slightly atmospherics question, which is that we've been raising the alarm about Rahimi all year. I know you wrote Mm -hmm. a really prescient piece in The Atlantic about it. My sense is that anyone who tuned in uh, to the 90-minute arguments on Tuesday would have been completely flummoxed, right? Lost in this quicksand Mm -hmm. of legalese and levels of abstraction that were very out of whack with the hair-raising facts of the case, the hair-raising data 
on gun violence and domestic partner violence and mass shootings. Was your sense of it that there was just this profound mismatch between all of the kind of curtain raisers about Rahimi and Zaki Rahimi and what he did and what was at stake and the conversation that unfolded at the Supreme Court on Tuesday? I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a reason why Clarence Thomas said, uh, oh, the record here is thin. We have a very thin record. It's because he would rather avoid the record. The record is egregious. The facts are very striking in that Zaki Rahimi was subject to a domestic violence protective order because he was seen being violent towards his girlfriend, his then-girlfriend, Someone witnessed this, and so he shot at them and then told their girlfriend, I'll shoot you too if you tell anybody. And that was one of at least six incidents that we know of. The most memorable incident for me is the one where his friend's credit card was declined at a Whataburger, and so he took his gun out and started firing in the air. (laughs) So just not exactly what you would call a responsible gun owner, but that's not what Justice Thomas or Justice Alito wanted to talk about. They would rather focus on whether there was a historical right in like 1787 uh, that permitted people like Rahimi to have a firearm. And if you're living in 2023, if you're exposed to the epidemic of gun violence today, you're like, why exactly is that relevant? I'm not sure why this matters. And the answer is that it shouldn't matter, but the Supreme Court said it did in Bruin last year, where they relied heavily on originalism, uh, saying the Constitution has to be understood now as we assume it was publicly understood at the time it was enacted, which does not bode well for much of America. Right. And it's so interesting because I think sometimes... The court takes refuge behind all of the three-part tests and, you know, the anodyne legal doctrine. It's a way of saying, like, don't care about the facts of the case. Mm -hmm. You know, what matters is we're constructing a rule that is applicable for the future. But this was, again, the, the disjunction between what was even in the record in this case. You know, I I wrote a little bit about this this week, but the amicus briefs, which you couldn't read without recognizing, as you just said, in 2023, you know, people are being mowed down by weapons the framers couldn't have imagined. And none of that was there. And it really felt as though, I don't know, I almost want to say the court has always taken refuge behind abstraction, but originalism Mm -hmm. gives it another layer of refuge from the refuge that was hard to escape. Because I think it's not just the level of abstraction, but you also get to sort of put it off on someone other than yourself. You can avoid responsibility by saying, it's not me who thinks that domestic violence offenders should have like an inviolable right to a gun. It's the founding fathers. Take it up with George Washington. So like, don't worry me with those problems. It allows you to distance yourself from the very clear consequences of your own actions and like your choice of interpretation, because it really is a decision that they chose to make saying, oh, like we're deciding that the proper standard for analysis of a law's constitutionality has to be what we think people would have believed when almost everybody was much worse off, unless you are like a wealthy white guy, you are much worse off. So that's that's a baseline choice you made <laughs> that you did not have to. Uh, but it gives you a sort of cover behind, like a dual cover between both the legalese and between trying to lift up this legacy of like great American heritage and say, oh, it's actually what the founding fathers wanted when you don't actually know if that was true, first of all. And second of all, to the extent it was true, okay, and uh, <laughs> if the consequence is going to be sacrificing women's lives, I think you should reevaluate. So this takes me to both the title of your book and your really good piece in The Atlantic. Your book is called The Originalism Trap. And holy hell, it felt like the court (laughs) was just pinned under like the most stupid construction of originalism on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And everyone but the diehards wanted it seemed to me nothing to do with the extreme, extreme version 
of the Bruin test, and in part because that test, as you just flagged, is just a crazy way for assessing (laughs) modern gun laws, in part because the the data I'm looking at shows that 82% of Americans support gun restrictions, at least for those convicted of domestic violence. So what the court decides to do, at least that quote-unquote moderate block in the middle, the Chief Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, in different ways, Justice Gorsuch, they decide, again, to paraphrase Justice Kagan, to just run away (laughs) from the facts (laughs) of the case and also to run away from originalism, at Mm -hmm. least as it's constructed in Bruin. So I would love if you would, I know you think about this all the time, give us your sense of what the Bruin test demanded, and then just a quick take on all the ways in which every seemingly sane member of the court retreated from that. Right. Before Bruin, courts used to rely on a two-part test uh, where they would say, first off, does this prohibited conduct fall within the scope of the Second Amendment as it was originally understood? And then the second step was saying, okay, if it does fall within that scope, like if we think it would be protected, let's do like a means and ends test. Like is the is the right being infringed upon like a small enough infringement for a good enough reason? So, for example, temporarily disarming domestic violence offenders because they had a history of violence against their partner and we don't want this partner to live in fear or not live at all. Uh, So that would be an example of the sort of type of tests and balancing you would have done in a pre-Bruin world. But in Bruin, Clarence Thomas and all of the rest of the conservative members of the court who did sign on to this opinion, they said, actually, that's one step too many. The proper analysis should only be the history. Uh, a gun law is presumptively unconstitutional unless it fits within this idea of history and tradition when the Second Amendment, uh, when the Bill of Rights would have been uh, enacted in like 1791. Potentially, they left the door open, potentially 1868, if they're feeling generous, can look at the Reconstruction era, say maybe, you know, maybe we'll uh, use as our reference point uh after the country let Black people have a few rights, uh, maybe, but they really leaned on the founding era. So that's what the attorneys representing Rahimi also leaned on. They said, okay, well, you said in Bruin that there has to be a historical analog, and there's no historical analog of disarming men who commit acts of violence against their partners. And so you can see what the direct consequences of uh, what the court laid out in Bruin and like how that would apply. It sort of flows naturally from what they said. Like you almost you almost have to feel bad for Rahimi's counsel because like he's just a public defender doing the best he can trying to keep his client out of jail. And to do that, he's using the standard that the court gave him. But now confronted with the consequences of the standard that the court created, the court is kind of like, oh, no, (laughs) maybe we need to uh, try change the standard slightly, which is what the solicitor general did a really great job at during oral argument by sort of giving cover to the justices a little bit by saying, oh, actually, Bruin was misapplied. The better way to understand Bruin would be in a way that's not as outrageous as what you said. And the courts are like, "Okay, yes, thank you. No, it was so evident to me that Solicitor General Prelogger was trying so, so, so hard to say, like, okay, I'm going to power wash, spit shine, Mm -hmm. and then varnish Bruin to make it palatable, (laughs) even though I hate it, too, Mm -hmm. uh, in order to save face for the court. I want to listen to Elena Kagan for one second, making exactly the point you just made, which is, all right, you're doing a one-to-one historical analog. We got nothing for domestic violence because it wasn't a thing. You know, uh, 200-some years ago, the problem of domestic violence was conceived very differently. People had a different understanding of the harm. People had a different understanding of the right of government to try to prevent the harm. People had different understandings with respect to pretty much every aspect of the problem. So if you're looking for a ban on domestic violence, it's not going to be there. 
Go figure. <laughs> and now I just want to, if I could turn for one second to me, and I'm sure to you, the most interesting part of the argument was Katanji Brown Jackson, who has been lauded, right, as mm-hmm. the court's singular progressive originalist, mm-hmm. right? And all of last term, she was taking the project of originalism really seriously and saying, hey, you know, if we're going to go to original public meaning, if we're going to go to text in history. Then the history of the Reconstruction counts, too. Well, that's, I mean, there's two pieces to what Justice Jackson was doing, both of which were incredibly interesting. One was exactly what you just said, Madiba, which is, I'm sorry, you're just going to stop time uh, at the founders. <laughs> that was fascinating. And she sort of said, I don't really love this idea of deciding you know, who was in the political sphere before Reconstruction. But the other move Mm -hmm. that was super interesting was it seemed to me that she was also saying the test in Bruin sucks, which is just kind (laughs) of shocking from the self-proclaimed originalist. Yeah, I mean, it really is an atrocious standard. I guess, like, what more progressive or, like, moderate originalist, like, as we saw from the Solicitor General's argument, would try to say, we can save this if we use a different level of abstraction. Like if we say, okay, obviously there were not laws that disarmed domestic violence offenders because no one cared about domestic violence then, but we did have laws that uh, disarmed people who were considered dangerous. Now, currently we conceive of danger differently, but there were still laws that disarmed dangerous people. And yeah, Justice Jackson had a great moment of sort of being like, okay, but if we are doing things differently, then what's the point? <laughs> and the point is that originalism is a farce. It's a trap, as I say in the title of my forthcoming book. The whole purpose of originalism is to act as a vehicle for the conservative legal movement. It's to provide this sort of cover to achieve these policy goals while pretending that you're doing law, that you are performing your analyses in this proper, objective way tied to what the founders would have wanted. But the natural consequence of linking the interpretation of law today to whatever historical horrors were occurring way back when is that that era's lowest shortcomings become our highest constitutional standards. And it shows that all the people who would have been excluded from proper political and social membership, so like Black people, like women of all races, uh, like all sorts of people are going to be inherently disadvantaged now because they were disadvantaged then. And it sort of locks in the sort of social hierarchies that are so important to today's conservative legal movement, but allows them to pretend that's not what they're doing. You had mentioned earlier uh, some of Justice Jackson's questioning. She had highlighted at one point, you know, what are legislators supposed to do? And I think that this is a often overlooked part of originalism in that, like, not only is it so obviously bad for regular people trying to go about their days, but I think that elected officials should also be a little bit mad about it because it ties their hands. It prevents them from really thinking about how to respond to modern problems for their constituents and, like, how to engage in legislation if you have, like... Alito and Thomas out here saying, actually, in order to be legal, it has to already be a law. It had to have been a law back in the like 18th century. Otherwise, you like can't you can't legislate. Uh, if I'm if I'm an elected official, I'm like, okay, well, wait a second. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean for me doing my job and like serving my serving my uh, constituency? So I think that was an interesting an interesting point that is doesn't get enough attention. Here's actually the audio, because I I love that moment too, Madiba, where um, Justice Jackson, who, to the extent there's a current events moment, right, she's flicking at the mass shooting in Maine, and she's saying... Let's say I'm a legislator uh, today in Maine, for example, and um, I'm very concerned about what has happened in that community and my people, the constituents are asking me to do something. Um, Do you read Bruin as step one being um, go to the archives and try to determine whether or not there's some historical analog for the kinds of legislation that I'm considering? So this leaves me with this question about, it's very clear 
I kept listening to the Chief Justice, to Justice Barrett, to Justice Kavanaugh. It was like that Homer Simpson, like, backing into the hedge moment where they were like, <laughs> I'm not an originalist. If this is original, mm-hmm. this be. Like, what are you talking about? just <laughs> bananas. And, you know, I think probably the moment that gets the most airplay in oral argument is the Chief Justice really questioning Rahimi's lawyer on what <laughs> dangerousness means. Well, to the extent that's pertinent, you don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment. mean, someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people, uh, that's a good start. So, so it, <laughs> that's fair. To me, it was a really telling moment of at least those quote-unquote, I use the word centrist judges very, very advisedly, but they want nothing to do with whatever it is that Clarence Thomas set forth in Bruin. And I find myself wondering, and maybe you can't answer because it's one of those completely speculative questions, but does it mean that if they are creeping away from Thomas's test in Bruin, that the plan here is to decide this on a really narrow basis? I think Justice Gorsuch was offering fodder to do that without fully refining whatever happened in Bruin without really a deep gloss on what we mean when we think about history and text and meaning? Or do you have a sense that they're poised to say, holy cow, we made an error. Uh, Let's fix it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't have that much faith in them that they would come out right and be like our bad let's do a reasonable test instead of what we said in Bruin. But I think they would try to sort of gussy up the Bruin test, uh, put some, slap some lipstick on that pig and try to do what the Solicitor General was saying of, okay, there is this deep historical tradition of disarming dangerous people. Rahimi constitutes as someone who who should not have a gun based on this history of dangerous actions. Therefore, law is still valid. But I think that still leaves us in a pretty mushy, unclear place insofar as like what guidance that gives to lower courts. They they might see that and think, okay, well, we know now that it doesn't have to be an exact one-to-one match. Like we don't have to say you have to regulate the precise same issue in the precise same way in order for it to be constitutional today. But it still doesn't quite tell you how much wiggle room there is. And I wouldn't expect the justices to actually make that super clear still, because I don't think they want to, I don't think they want to run away from originalism. They don't want to run away from history and tradition, which is, you know, what they used in Dobbs as well to like finally for them overturn Roe v. Wade. That was a history and tradition type of analysis there. And we've also seen that like other parts of the conservative legal movement are pushing these sorts of history and tradition type arguments to try to go after a whole host of other recognized rights, uh, like saying, oh, let's let's strike down Obergefell next and recognition of gay marriage because there is no history and tradition of doing so. So I think that they have too much writing on this idea that they've been cultivating for decades as like the premier vehicle for their policy goals to then entirely run away from it. But I do think that the particular facts of the present case are just so outrageous that they don't have, well, most of them don't have it in them. Uh, Alito has it in him. <laughs> Thomas has it in him. Uh, but like Barrett, uh, like Roberts, they don't necessarily have it in them to do something that glaringly bad that has such like universal, <laughs> uh, nearly universal recognition that Rahimi should not have a gun. I think that the answer to that question is just like so simple. I mean, hell, Rahimi agrees that he shouldn't have a gun. <laughs> uh, he he wrote a letter a few months back, like to the judges, and he was like, you know what? I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm not going to touch a gun anymore. Like if I get out of here, no more guns for me. Like there's universal agreement almost that Zaki Rahimi should not have a gun, and so it would really put the Supreme Court like far out on the fringes if they were to say otherwise. 
Mediba K. Denny is an attorney, columnist, and professor whose work focuses on fostering an equitable multiracial democracy. You can find her work at Balls and Strikes. She is also hard at work on her debut book, forthcoming from Random House next summer, The Originalism Trap, How Extremists Stole the Constitution, and How We the People Can Take It Back. Madiba, it is such a treat to have you on the show. I hope we can have you back again soon. And thank you so, so much for what I think has been a really clarion voice in your writing on the stakes of Rahimi. Thank you so much. I appreciate that and would love to come back. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your comments and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham with thanks to Patrick Fort. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, take good care.